0: Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Barra. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 this morning. So as you're flipping there, let me introduce myself a little bit. I'm a youth, the youth pastor at the Anderson campus. I'm, I'm over here uh, visiting you guys. I'm not here very often. I, I get to work with Jared Perry and other fine folk like that here at the Anderson campus working with youth. And so it is awesome, awesome to be here. So thank you for, uh, for letting me come and, and, and be with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in Theophanies, if you've been with us over the summer. And so I'm going to read a little bit for us in Exodus chapter 19. Before I do that, uh, tell you a little bit more about me. Um, I have a wife named Hillary, who's actually working in the nursery over at the Anderson campus at the moment, scheduling conflict. But we have three kids. I have a four-year-old daughter named Peyton. I have a almost three-year-old son named Micah. And I have a one-year-old son named Jesse. And uh, if you're doing the math on that, that's three, four, and under. And uh, so people ask me, what have you been doing this summer? That, uh, three kids, four, and under. So let me read for us a little bit and uh, pray one more time and then we'll dive in. Exodus chapter 19, starting verse one. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself.'" Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today. And tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast... They shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord, I ask you that in these few moments where we open your word, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to really the glories and holiness of of who you are. And Lord, I pray that you remove any distractions, any, any baggage that we are coming in here with for a moment we might focus on you in this time. Father, we love you. I lift up this time to you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in college, uh, I went with some friends of mine, and we rented a, a house in Colorado. And when you're in college, and there's just you know, you've got nothing to do for the summer. That's kind of the thing that you do. You just rent some random house in Colorado. And, and my roommates had gotten there before me, and so I show up after them, and the, the house was a typical college house. I mean, it was vacant. There was no furniture in it, and it was dirty, and it had no air conditioning. And, and so we get there, and uh, the first night, all of us are just sleeping on the floor in random bedrooms, okay? So I'm there, and, and I'm in a sleeping bag next to my buddy, and about 3 a.m. rolls around, and I hear this, woo, 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 woo. I'm like, what was that? I'm like, okay, maybe that's just a cop that went by, something like that, not a big deal. And then about 10 minutes later, I hear this, woo, 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 woo back by me again. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And I'm like, okay, two, not bad. Trying to be asleep, trying to maintain. And then the third one, woo, woo, woo and I hit my roommate. I'm like, does that happen every night? And he's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And we can't shut the windows but we're right by a major thoroughfare, and they go all night. Don't worry, dude. You'll get used to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, where did I land, right? And then we get up the next morning. He goes, hey, we're going to go cliff jumping. We're going to jump in your car, because you just got here. You got a full tank of gas, and so let's go. And so we load up into my car, and he goes, go that way, and we start heading up the side of this mountain. I mean, it's like switchbacks driving. It takes forever, and we get to the edge of this beautiful cliff and beautiful moment. I don't know if you've ever seen mountains like that in Colorado where you just stand and it is just majestic in what you behold and we come to the edge of this cliff and we see a sign that says no jumping right and as we come to the edge of it he says to me yeah hey this is the spot dude you ready for this and we're all standing there on the edge of this precipice looking down below and there's that moment if we we're with a bunch of guys we we're just like Trying to bow up to each other, you know, but trying to play off the fact that you're not terrified for your life. And like, yeah, hold on, I need to stretch out a little bit. Uh, The hammy tightens up every now and then. So we're all just kind of like, you know, figuring out who's going to go first on this, you know, death-defying mission, right? And so as we're standing there, all of a sudden one guy just busts through the crowd. He goes, I'm going, and he runs and jumps and does a gainer, which means you jump up and dive in backwards. And the rest of us all rush to the side like, oh my gosh, he's gonna die, right? And as he's plummeting to his demise, uh, my roommate beside me goes to me, hey, um, yeah, that's a lot deeper than it was last week when we were here, but we didn't want to tell you because we wanted you to go first. I'm like, hey, thanks, buddy, right? And he plummets down and goes under the water, and it takes forever for him to get up. And we're like, we're going to call those ambulances over here. What's going on? And, and finally, he comes up from the water, and he goes, ah. And he smiles, and he's, he's you know, bright, bright looking at us, and he's happy. And I'm like, okay, it's safe, kind of, right? And so, But all of a sudden, we're, we find ourselves at this moment, where we see something beautiful, majestic, but menacing, terrific, yet terrifying. Have you ever been a moment like that? Where you see the beauty before you that is both beautiful and scary. And the reason I start there is because that's where we are in this moment in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is, is an epic story of God's interaction with the people of Israel, And if you're familiar with the story at all, um, Guff, uh, Chris uh, McGuffey, several months ago, started by talking about Moses' call to save the people of Israel. And he went to Egypt, and he declared to the Egyptian king, hey, let my people go. Little skirmishes, stuff happened, and he let them out. Three months later, we find ourselves at the base of Mount Sinai, the same mountain where he spoke to God from the bush, and he's led the people to this moment. And as they're standing there after this three-month journey, you see God interact with the people of Israel face-to-face, speaking to them. And it is both majestic and menacing. And any anytime you're in a mountain experience, you learn something about yourself. And in this moment, we learn three things. We see the holiness of God, the hardness of the human heart, and our need for a hero. The first thing we see is the holiness of God. A helpful definition to jump us off into holiness comes from um, R.C. Sproul, and he puts it this way. He says, The primary meaning of holy is to separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate would be the phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that it has superior quality. We use this expression. We say that it is a cut above the rest. In Exodus 15, it says this, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? In this moment, we come face to face with the holiness of God. And here's what's important to understand about holiness. Oftentimes when we hear that description, we think of it as one attribute in the list of characteristics, but that's not how we should see holiness. See, oftentimes we would see it like this, like God is holy, he's just, he's merciful, he's loving. We'd put it in a list of many, but actually holiness is a controlling attribute of all of his characteristics. So it's like if you were trying to describe me, you would say Kevin's uh, wearing jeans, Kevin has brown hair, Kevin is thin, right? So those are some characteristics about me. But to really describe me, you would actually need a controlling characteristic to categorize all of those. So you would say, Kevin is awesome, right? And then you would say, Kevin has awesome jeans, right? Kevin has awesome hair. Kevin has awesome uh, something, you know, whatever. So you would need that controlling characteristic. And when we think about God, we see that he is holy in all of his interactions. He's holy in everything that he is. He is holy in his justice. He is holy in his mercy. And in this we see that God is holy in three particular ways. He is powerful, he is personal, and he is pure. The first thing that we see is this, that he is powerful. And he reiterates it in, 19, in chapter 19, verse 4. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What he brings to their memory after a three-month time span is this, remember everything that I did for you? Remember my power to bring you all the way to this spot. And he was powerful. I mean, we saw it in the 10 plagues to, to release the grip of Pharaoh and bring the people out. You saw it at the point when they come to the Red Sea, literally between a rock and a hard place, the, the sea in front of them, the army of Egypt behind them, and in that moment they're freaking out, sucking their thumbs, and then God says, just chill water parts, and they walk through safely. And then they come to the next trial where, where they, they're mis- they're, they don't have enough water, and they cry out, "Guy, like, did you lead us into the wilderness to die? And he's like, calm down, here's some water. And they, they don't have any food, and they're just like, God, we're not going to eat out in the wilderness, what's going on? And he's like, oh, calm down, I'll give you manna from heaven, it'll be all right, right." Right. They go along, there's another water shortage. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Here's some more water. And then they come to the edge in chapter 18 of Exodus where they have their first fight, their first army, and they battle Amalek. And he leads them in victory through the war. Each time God is saying, look at how powerful I am to provide everything you need in the moment you need it most. We see that God is powerful, but he's also personal. He says, see how I led you on the wings of an eagle, like an eagle caring for its young. And I don't know if you know much about eagles, but, but here's what I understand. When a, a mama eagle is teaching a baby eagle how to fly, what they'll do is they'll get on the edge of a cliff, and the mama will kind of scoot that little baby up there to the edge of it, sit there beside it, and say, you ready for this? And then it'll knock them off, right? And as that eagle is plummeting to its demise, the, the mama eagle will fly down, get below it, catch it, and bring it up. I mean, it's teaching it how to fly. It's fly or die, right? But, but it's teaching it how to fly. He's caring for it. And that's exactly what God did with this nation. He led them into a little bit of crisis. They freak out, and he goes, look, I'm gonna give you water, people. He leads them into another little moment where they don't have food, and they're just like, we, do you even care? And he's like, yes, I care. I brought you here. And he gives them what they need. Each moment, he's showing them that he is powerful, and that he's personal. And beyond this, in verse 5, he, ends, he extends a personal invite. In verse 5 of chapter 19, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He gives him a personal invite into a personal relationship with him. He says, I'm, I've saved you, for a purpose, so that you would be in relationship with me. And we see, thirdly, that he's pure. He tells Moses, okay, you tell the people that when they come, that they need to consecrate themselves, they need to clean their garments, they need to clean themselves before they enter into my presence. And even when they come into my presence, you don't touch the mountain, you enter and you do what I tell you to do. And at one level, you might think to yourself, okay, is God being a jerk right here? If they're dirty, it's because they've just walked through the wilderness for three months, right? And there was water shortages along the way, right? I mean, is God being a jerk at this moment saying, hey, you guys kind of, you know, like, can you get that under control? Like, I mean, what's going on here? But what we see in this moment is that God is pure and he's unlike anything we ever encountered. And the higher level, the level of authority, the more rules they can set in place for how they're approached. And so the first time I ever got pulled over by a cop, the first time, right, I was about 16 years old, and, uh, and I was speeding, I knew it, I was pleading guilty, right? And so I pull over to the side, and I know immediately, okay, I need my license, I need my insurance, and so I grab those things out, I open the door, I step out, and I start walking back to the cop. <laughs> by this moment, the cop had opened his door and is looking at me, and as I'm walking back to him, he puts his hand on his gun, he goes, son... You better get back in that car. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, son, I will come to you. I'm like, what is he doing? You know, I'm just freaking out. But he's an authority, and he gets to determine how he's approached. The same is true if you want to fly, right? TSA and the airlines, they've got their own agenda, right? You take off your shoes, your belt, your clothes. You know, you come when I tell you to come. You put your hands above your head. You turn when I tell you to turn. You come and you approach how they tell you to, right? Because they're an authority. And they get to determine how they're approached. The same is true if you were to approach the president, right? If you saw Barack Obama walking along, kind of with his entourage, kind of hanging out, and you're like, hey, Barack, how's it going? You run over to him. You will get tackled. (laughs) You'll get put in a room. There will be a bright light shine in your face, and they will fuel questions at you, like, what do you think you're doing? And and you realize, the higher the level of, of authority, the more rules there are in how you approach them. And in this moment, we are in contact with a holy God, the highest authority. And he says, You purify yourself and you come to my presence. And in this moment, it's terrifying. Because in, in the next part of chapter 19, all the way through verse 20, you see God interact with a people, and you see the holiness of God descend on the mountain. Chapter 19, verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder and the Lord came down on Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. I mean, this is a a crazy moment a collision of the holiness of God on top of this mountain. And at this moment, God gives them the Ten Commandments. God literally speaks the Ten Commandments to Moses and in the hearing of all of the people. And it is terrifying. I mean, I, I was, in, in my, my own personal mind, I was, I was trying to like capture images of holiness, of what this would be like. And I was watching the BBC network, And he was talking about an an astronaut who launched for the first time into outer space. And so as he got into space, he was in his spaceship, and he was going to be getting out to work on a a, a satellite that was there. And he describes his experiences when he got out of the the spaceship and first got into the openness of outer space. He describes it this way. He said, I saw the, the beauty and brightness of the sun, and I saw the brightness of the earth beneath me. He says, at that moment, I, I passed out. I, I got vertigo. I didn't even, I couldn't even keep my bearings. Because he was caught in a moment of glory. And in this moment, on top of this mountain, you see God descend and his holiness seen. And it is terrifying. There's lightning flashing. The mountain is shaking. And in this moment, the people freak out. In chapter 20, verse 18, we see the response. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick cloud. In this moment, the people are afraid, and you see that this moment, the reason for this show is actually purposeful. Moses tells them, he says, look, there's a fear that causes you to run away. And there is a fear that causes you to obey. The reason God descended in this moment is that you would have a holy, righteous fear of the living God. I I love C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he captures this idea of fear in in a good image. And if you're not familiar with the story, it's basically a a story of a bunch of kids, siblings, that kind of enter into a wardrobe, into this crazy, weird world where animals talk, right? And so at a moment, some of the kids are talking with uh, Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver describes Aslan, the lion. He says, Aslan's the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, He's the king, I tell you. See, this moment, we see that God is good. He is holy in his goodness. And when we approach him, we should have a righteous fear of the holy God. And for many of us, we would think that that would be enough, right? Even as you read those descriptions and that imagery, you would think to yourself, or some of us would, I would love to have that moment. Not the moment where I'm so scared I'm sucking my thumb and crying, but I would like the moment when God descended and I can know that he's real. When he comes to the earth and I can see who he really is and, and know without beyond a shadow of a doubt this is who God is and this is what he's like. And, and many of us would say, hey, I want that type of moment. But the tragedy is this moment doesn't last that long we see that their heart actually is displayed as extremely hard. What happens next in chapters 19 through 32, Moses goes up and down from the mountain, getting the law of God literally written by the finger of God on tablets and bringing him down to the people. And each time he would get more rules from God, he would come down to the people, he would tell them the law, and they would say, hey, everything that you've said, we're on board, we're going to do. Until you get to chapter 24, And in that moment, Moses goes up for an extended visit. And the people are are waiting on God. And most of us would say, man, if I just knew God was there in that way, there is no way that I would disobey or go a, a, a different direction. But our heart is hard. And our heart will go in a different direction given the right opportunity. I mean, think about it. Just because you see something amazing doesn't mean that it will stick with you for very long. It has nothing to do with the holiness of God. It has to do with the hardness of our heart. So I went to see a 3D movie recently, right? 3D IMAX. And it was amazing. We're over there. The screen is like as large as this room, right? And you're sitting there in front of the screen, and the characters are huge. I mean, you can watch a drop of sweat the size of your favorite actor, fall down their face and, and, and you can listen to it right and shrapnel from the building will fly into your eye 3D style as you're sitting there and the, the noise there is so loud it's, it's epic and it's like boom, 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 boom. it just fills you up and it's, it's amazing to behold and you're just like this is crazy and then you walk out and you go, and a buddy goes hey how was the movie and you go that was good yeah. it's whatever there was pieces of building flying in your eye, and you say, eh, you know, I've seen better. You know, like, what are we doing, right? But we all do that. When you get caught in a moment of grandeur, when you see God for who he is, it doesn't stick with us. The hardness of our heart is revealed. And God was testing them. Moses was up for 40 days, and he left them down there. What was the response? Flip over to chapter 32 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, of your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, And drink and rose up to play. What happens? They create a a false God. See, God made them wait and they stopped trusting God. And they turned and they did whatever they wanted to, they took matters into their own hands. And oftentimes, God will make you wait to test you. And so for many of you, he'll make you wait in the area of dating. You'll say to yourself, God, I want to date someone. Like, I've got a, kind of an idea of what that person would be like, and, and, you'll, and God will make you wait. And you're like, God, this is taking forever. What's going on? And he's like, I know you, I want this type of person for you. Yeah, but, I mean, like, that person's impossible, like, to, to love you and serve you and, like, be pure. Like, that doesn't even exist nowadays. Like, you want me to wait on that person? Just wait? God make you wait on a job, Right? For some of you, you, you may be applying for jobs. I mean, the economy is turning around, but maybe you still haven't found that job or you're graduating soon and be looking for jobs and, and, and it'll get frustrating as you're just sitting there waiting for God to move. And you're like, I'm faithful. I'm coming to church. I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to be good with you, God, and yet you're making me wait. You're not making ends meet and maybe you think maybe i'll just fudge on some of these dates and maybe i can say a little i've done a little bit more or or i'm a little bit more accomplished than i actually am and so maybe i'll just kind of fudge on some of these things or god i need money you know i mean the job that i have isn't give me what i need for the house that we want to buy and all these different things and so maybe once tax season rolls around i'll just kind of fudge on some of those numbers you know just kind of do it a different way and 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 save some cash god i need money I know, God, you want me to treat my wife a certain way or my husband a certain way, and I know you want me to, to submit to them and love them, but you know they're crazy. <laughs> and they're not changing. And you want me to just wait, wait for them to change? See, God will make every one of us wait to be faithful in the place he put us. He gives you enough to trust him, but he will make you wait. And it's tragic. The the, the people, what they do is they build a a, a calf, and and most scholars don't think they were building a, a, they weren't making a new God. But what they were doing is they were taking an image that was popular in their culture and tying it into the worship of God that they had kind of knew, and they were just saying, God, Will you just bless our worship if we do it this way? So they fashioned it into a calf and they worship. And it says they got drunk. And by rising up to play, it means they committed sexual immorality. I mean, how do you go from seeing the holiness of God right before you to worshiping God in a broken way? But we do the same thing. And our gods are a lot more sophisticated than a calf. There's not many of us that are going out and building bulls in the backyard. Help me, bull. You know, we're not doing it that way. But we've got much more sophisticated ways of worshiping our own idols. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, has a great way of describing it. He says it this way. In Ezekiel 14, three, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their hearts. And like us, the elders must have responded to this charge. Idols, what, are you, what idols? I, I don't see any idols. But God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I will know my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I will feel significant. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship. But perhaps the best one is worship. And every one of us will take good things that God has given and make them into ultimate things. And you see this in the area of love. I've got a four-year-old daughter, which means I read princess stories all the time, right? And one of the books in particular has all the princesses lined up and it summarizes their little stories, right? And they're basically the same. I mean, what's the point with Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White? What's the point? You will be saved by the love of a prince, right? And guys, we got the same ones Princess and the Frog, Beauty and the Beast. What's the point? You are ugly. Until a beautiful woman steps into your presence and tells you you're worth something. Or it could be money. You're chasing these ends to to make you feel significant, make you feel successful. Money's not a bad thing, but as a God, it's a bad thing. Or it's success. It's chasing a stage like this or that moment where they give you that spot you wanted somewhere. Madonna says it this way. I have an iron will, and all of my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in this life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. See, our idols will destroy us. They promise more than they can deliver. They promise you hope and life, and they deliver death. And that's why Jesus said, I came to destroy your idols. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I've come to give you life that you might have it abundantly. And Moses gets this information. He travels down the mountain, and he confronts Aaron. And as he walks up to Aaron, Aaron goes, he goes, Aaron, what, what did you do? What did these people go crazy. He goes, I, I don't know. Like, I got all the gold together, threw it in the fire, and this came out. And uh, so, don't blame me. And you know those people are crazy, right? Go read it. That's in the Hebrew, right? He's like, they're nuts. We, I'm not to blame, right? And he stands in this moment when he's confronted, and he does the same thing that Adam did in the garden. Hey, I was fine, but the woman you put here gave me fruit and I ate it. So I'll be back here with the monkeys, you guys figure it out, right? Just totally deflects responsibility. And in that moment, Moses has a, a horrible decision to make. This is when the holiness of God is disrespected in this way. What do we do? In, a verse, in chapter 30, verse 30, Moses comes down, comes to the people again. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day that I, when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. This is an incredible moment in the story. And we see that Moses has come a long way. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was begging for an escape. Send someone else to free your people. And in this moment, he stands before God on behalf of all of them. And he says to God, look, let me atone for their sin. And God says, you can't. You don't have that ability. And what he's referencing in atonement is the idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice. And while he was with God, he got the image of of what it would be to make restitution with God. He would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would take the calf. He would slit its throat, a perfect, unblemished animal, and the sins of the people would be put on the calf and forgiven, wiped away for a year. And Moses offers himself to God saying, Look, will you destroy me and save them? Blot me out of your book of life, but forgive them. And God says, you don't have the ability to do that. There's only one hero to the story. There's only one person who can fully forgive sins that has the ability to wipe away the stain that stains all of us. His name is Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews it tells us that Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies, the perfect place with God, the perfect environment, the perfect tabernacle in heaven and offered himself once for all of us. This morning we get to celebrate communion. A moment when we celebrate the sacrifice of the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for our sins. The men are going to go back and prepare that. But I want to close with one, uh, a couple illustrations, a couple applications this morning. This phenomenal moment when Jesus sacrifice himself. For many of us, it gets missed on us. But we know that the greatest award we can give in this country is to a man or a woman who sacrifices himself or herself for the sake of another. We call it the Medal of Honor. And we give our soldiers the Medal of Honor if they willingly give of themselves for the sake of another. We see the love displayed there. And the truth is this, love sacrifices. And the greatest demonstration of love is when someone sacrifices themselves for the sake of another. So I love the movie Frozen. You heard that right, me, right? I've got a four-year-old daughter, so I had to watch it, but I actually enjoyed it. I'm sorry, men, you can collect my man card at the end of the service, uh, but I'm that guy, right? And I love it because it's a story where it plays out this picture in in a beautiful way. Because it starts, the story starts with two sisters, and one of them has these amazing gifts, Elsa, that she can't control. And they become exposed, and so she runs up the side of the mountain, she's hiding up there, and she's like, look, y'all go away from me, I'll just be by myself, don't be near me. I can't control all of these things that I have, I make a wreckage of my life. And then Anna, her sister, runs up and says, hey, you've got to come back. I'll help you through this. And she says, no. And she sends her away. But she even sings a song. She's like, look, you've got to come help me. Arendelle's in deep, deep, deep deep snow. You've got to fix this thing. Let's do this. (laughs) And and she's like, no, you go. And so she sends her sister away. And a little bit while later, uh, uh, the villain of the story comes up. His name is Hans. And he captures her and brings her down to Arendelle. And she escapes, and she's running across the ice lake, and Hans is running with a sword raised to kill her. And Anna, who has been cursed, is running towards her sister to protect her. And in a moment, she stops and turns and raises her hand and blocks the sword, splitting it, sending that fool on his booty, (laughs) And freezes, and her sister Elsa realizes the greatest love is in sacrificing yourself for someone who really needs it. And that's what we have in Christ. The man, God, who stepped into history, laid down his life for us because we so needed it to bring us back into relationship with a holy, loving God. So I want to leave you with three questions. How big is your God how holy and glorious is the view of the majestic God we serve? How, how big is your God? Secondly, what are the idols of your heart? What are you running to to say, God, I will worship you, but just don't take this from me? And thirdly, who's the hero of your story? Is it the Son of God who came into this world to pay for our sins and lead us into freedom? Or is it something else that you're chasing? the men are going to come forward and, and serve communion with us. I want you to take a moment right now and, and reflect on some of these thoughts I've given you. I'll pray for us, and we'll start communion. Well, Father, I lift up this time to you, and, um, and Lord, I pray that we might remember the great sacrifice that you've given through your Son. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup I pray that we would do this really in remembrance of the great sacrifice that you have made in laying down yourself for us. Men are now going to serve. On the night where Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And he picked up a cup. He said, I want you to look at the cup and say, this is my blood that has been shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, Father, we thank you for the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ, who died the death we deserve to die and purchased for us a new life and freedom in you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through our day, we might remember the holiness of God, the sad reality of the hardness of our heart, but we'd see that you provided the hero to the story that we needed, the son who lived the perfect life and died in our place for our sins. Father, we love you. I lift up these people to you, that you would hold them, protect them, and guide them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.